Hello and welcome to the High Potential Startups interview series. I'm your host, Nick Taylor, and this podcast is sponsored by Optimus Ventures, one of Europe's largest and most active VCs. With over a billion pounds under management and a portfolio of more than 100 companies, their investment team specializes in five areas, health, fintech, deep tech, consumer, and B2B software. The health team in particular is looking to back entrepreneurs who are transforming the health industry from digital therapeutics through to biotech at seed, series A and B. To date, Octopus Ventures has backed some of the most disruptive startups in health, including LV, Big Health, Overture, Ori Biotech and Quick Genius, making them the perfect partners for the podcast as we talk to CEOs at the cutting edge of the life science space, discussing their careers, the highs and lows, as well as taking a much closer look at the future plans for the businesses they are leading. This week, I'm joined by Joao, CEO of Targtex, a Portuguese biotech with four employees, great ambitions and incredible passion about the treatment of brain cancer. Joao and I talk through the business's ambitions and the reality of patients diagnosed with glioblastoma and how crucial the opinion and feelings of the patients and the patient burden is for guiding their work. I hope you like it. Welcome to the, to the podcast series. Great to have you on. How are you? Hello, Nick. I'm very good. Thank you. Good, good. Well, look, I've given a, a brief introduction to, to the listeners on yourself and your background, but for them, can you can you do it true justice and let them know what you're doing, where you're at currently, um, and your touch on your background? Sure, of course. Um, so it's a pleasure uh, to be here. And uh, my name is João, João Seixas. I am currently the chief um, um, Chief Executive Officer of Tartex, a biotech company that started uh, two years ago in Lisbon, Portugal. I'm a scientist by training. I'm a chemist uh, with a PhD in organometallic chemistry, and I worked in drug development in a biotech company here in Portugal, then worked in a pharmaceutical company in Spain, also in a CRO in drug development in Spain, and in 2015 came back to Portugal to work in academia, also leading uh, drug discovery and development projects. And since 2019, together with some colleagues, we co-founded uh, Tartex, and that's now my uh, full-time occupation, 200% of my time. Okay, good. Um, so winding back then, taking you back to first step from PhD student, into to take it into a lab initially and then back out into into industry how what was the when was your first job in industry yeah so um I, I graduated in chemistry and the last year was a one-year internship that i took in uh, in a company a biotech company that was starting at that time in 2002 2003 in portugal and if you go back uh, to 2000, uh, into 2003, uh, the biotech scene in Portugal and the landscape was really poor. There were only a um, handful of, of companies operating in this field. So um, I was uh, lucky enough to get a trainee position uh, in this company called Alfama, where we developed uh, organometallic drugs to treat inflammatory diseases. And after one year internship, um, I started working as a researcher um, in the company 
uh, in the in the drug um, discovery area. With time, uh, I started accumulating um, other responsibilities, and I took my PhD in the company. So it was actually I was actually one of the first um, PhD students with an industrial PhD uh, with a scholarship from the um, the, the Portuguese. Um, um, foundation for science and technology. Uh, so um, I was able to run my PhD in the company, get my uh, industrial PhD, and I was in Alfama for nearly uh, 99 years. After that, I moved to GlaxoSmithKline in Spain uh, as part of the Tres Cantos Open Lab Foundation to work in neglected tropical diseases. So again uh, developing drugs uh, for uh, unmet medical needs worked in an insourcing model at gsk uh, for a spanish cro galkemia developing drugs again for neglected tropical diseases specifically in malaria and then in 2015 came back to lisbon for the first time to work in in academia uh, um, and this is where this was the place where I met um, other colleagues and co-founders of Tartex and where we started the project that now um, is a reality as a, as a company. Okay. So 12 years apart then from your starting point in Portugal and the biotech scene initially to, to today. And you mentioned at the start that it really wasn't that developed in Portugal. Where's the, ha, have things changed a lot in that time frame? Where, where, where do you see Portugal in terms of its position in Europe, its position overall as a, as a biotech hub? Um, yeah, what's your opinion on those changes? Yeah, uh, it did change a lot, uh, but not yet enough, in, in my opinion. Uh, if you look back to the beginning of the 2000s, you have uh, very few companies uh, willing to take this chance uh, and this, this um, leap to the unknown of starting uh, biotech companies. And also because uh, the tools were not in place, the knowledge was not in place. So up to 2000 in, let's say 10, 15, um, I'm not aware of um, tech transfer officers in main Portuguese universities. So the knowledge that was created in the universities was being directed to publishing. To, to publish papers, to writing scientific articles, and not really to translate this research that was done in universities into companies. Uh, and there were not around um, entrepreneurs with the experience of starting their own companies. So for you to start a, a company, um, it, it's always, you have to learn from someone. <laughs> Uh, or it's, at least it's good to learn from, from someone. And so these ones were the first ones that um, started uh, their own companies and they learn with their victories and, and with their failures, uh, of course. Nowadays, you have much more support for students, for uh, undergrads, PhDs, postdocs to start their own companies and their projects with the support of the universities, of incubators, of... Um, Training, uh, training facilities that exist, and also uh, financial and um, and technical tools to support this development. Uh, so obviously there is a lot more competition, but there is also more funding available, 
and if you have a very good uh, basic um, um, idea and research, so you 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 can you can do it. Okay, and uh, and the reality for then yourselves and taking yourself out of out of academia, how and and I often hear particularly at the early stage of a business that challenge of convincing a university to let go of certain pieces of IP at the right valuation um, to allow you to continue on your journey. How how easy was that? How mature was the university to deal with? How straightforward was it to, to actually set the business up and take the IP with it? It's, it's a very interesting question, Nick, because um, we were in a transition period. So before Tartex was born, we matured the idea for almost one year and we learned the right steps to establish the company, to build um, a, a business plan. We contacted key stakeholders in the area from um, physicians to uh, patient associations, to pharma industry, um, all across the, all across the, the, the area. And uh, so we knew what we had to do and we start contacting some of these uh, investors that would support establishing the independent company. And when we started this process, the university didn't have a TTO. Uh, but by the time we were closing the deal, they already had the TTO established. Uh, and so we were in a delicate situation of having to negotiate uh, equity in the company uh, with all of the, the founding partners and investor and university and licensing deals um, with the patents uh, and, and all of that. In the end, we all agreed that this was the direction to take and ultimately we are fully aligned in terms of goals uh, on the long run. So uh, we all benefit with the success of the company uh, the university, the, the shareholders, and the investors as well. So um, it is a, it was a, um, a conversation that was interesting to have because it was a new situation for all of us, but it's easy when we are all aligned and the ultimate goal is the same, which mm -hmm. is a success. Yeah, and I, th I think to your point, when you've, got, when you've got multiple stakeholders and you've got multiple groups, it's always very hard to get everyone finishing it and, leave, and being happy yeah smile on their face feeling like they've got their value and that they're adding their value at the same time um and that that delicate process particularly at the start where the value assigned to a business or value assigned to an ip is a lot harder to be accurate on and focused on in terms of its potential value it's of course easy when you're a cash business and you're generating revenue to declare certain markers for where evaluation comes from but much harder when you've got an ip piece um and you're looking at potential rather than clear revenue um did uh going going back to your first experience in biotech then looking at those early days versus the likes of gsk the biotech that you're in did you did the business grow, grow far? Did what sort of projects were you involved in? So um, I, I was in many different areas. So the first company that I worked for, Alfama, was a company that was um, in um, a few years ago acquired by a larger fund that merged all the IP in the area. The, the, their business is developing carbon monoxide releasing molecules for the treatment of inflammatory diseases 
in taking these um, up to clinical uh, stages of development because CO, which is known as a toxic molecule, also has a, a very uh, strong um, a very strong beneficial therapeutic effect under pathophysiological conditions. So working with organometallic molecules to treat inflammatory diseases, uh, and the company has followed uh, another direction together with um, or supported by a fund that also acquired the IP related to CO gas and inhalation uh, therapy. This is one. And on the other hand, the project that I run at uh, GSK or that was part at the Tres Cantos Open Lab Foundation were, um, were uh, um, led by Northeastern University in Boston. And the PI is now... Um, is now has a, a, a better position within the university university hierarchy and got some uh, NIH funding derived from this pivotal study. So we were trying to find new leads for human African trypanosomiasis. We got a family of compounds and we published two important papers that fed his lab for many years and led to other discoveries, additional funding, and to other clinical candidates uh, that uh, are being developed. So I was at the inception of this study that then took, um, took other, other directions. My third project then in, in academia in, in Lisbon, it's, it was with kinase inhibitors, um, BTK family, or more specifically, more broadly, tech, family of kinase inhibitors. And we patented um, this family of compounds that I have developed. And um, the patent is now in the process of either being licensed or getting funding to take it to, uh, to complete the preclinical development of this project. It's not going to be me anymore. But uh, so it's there in the university and the, the TTO that is now in place. It's now taking care of the project and um, trying to partner with some pharmaceutical companies to, to, to push this project forward. And it's interesting because, um, and this goes back to the question you asked before about um, equity and the different uh, players in assembling a, a company from scratch. I was not personally involved in this project uh, scientifically. So this was a project that was ongoing in our lab, uh, but I was not scientifically involved in this project. So on one hand, I do have um, scientific insight to the project, but I am emotionally detached from the project to be sufficiently um, to, to, to get to criticize freely what was done before and to question and to um, and, and to, to overcome all the obstacles that may appear based on questions that I can ask and I'm not compromised by what was done in the past. Good. And I just want to wind back to the academic piece because you've got some real landmarks there throughout your career in those three different positions. What drew you back to Portugal? What was the, what was the driver to come back from Spain and come back to, to Portugal? Yeah, so uh, mainly two reasons. I, I had a very comfortable position there, but that I, I was, I didn't see 
a personal growth on the long run. I would see myself as being part of an organization, continuously doing um, the same kind of projects that I was doing. And I was aspiring for a little bit more. And when I came back to Portugal was because it was given me the opportunity on one hand to lead the medicinal chemistry programs in the lab as a Marie Curie fellow, uh, and also to uh, dive deeper into biology on a hands-on approach. So where, when I was at Alfam, I started as a research scientist doing synthesis. Then I started developing some physical chemical assays for characterization. And when I left, I was team leader coordinating uh, the pharmacology lab we have in Boston with uh, the in vivo animal experiments we had in Lisbon and also with the chemistry that we had ongoing in Lisbon. So I was coordinating the three departments, a team of um, 10, 12 people. Um, but I never had the hands-on experience of doing animal experiments, of doing cell culture. I was analyzing and reviewing data. And when I came back to Portugal, uh, returning from Spain, I had the possibility to do that training hands-on. And people may think that that was really far ahead in your career that you wanted to come back to the lab. But I really felt that to be a better leader or a better manager or to really understand the hurdles of my colleagues, I need to have this experience and know exactly technically how these experiments are done. So I went through that. Um, I got my animal experiment license. I did my um, animal experiments. I did my cell culture. Uh, I learned the, the tricks. I learned the basics. Uh, and then with all this knowledge, I felt that uh, now I'm, I'm, I'm really much more mature and ready to assume um, uh, another kind of leadership position and to lead uh, with uh, projects with, with much more knowledge than I, than I had before. So this was also the drive for it, was the, the learning step that I was taking it and the increased responsibility that I was going to have in university. And you've taken a, so that's a, you raised a couple of pieces there that I think are, are quite interesting. Um, that mentality of understanding your colleagues and understanding the pain, pain points and pressures as well as then being able to help them overcome those pieces. You've now stepped into a CEO role. So for someone else that's early on in their career and completing a PhD, of course, there's, there's often opportunities to stay in academia, to leave um, and step into industry or, or move between for whatever reason. But often there are plenty of people ambitious enough that they think a CEO position in the long term is the right move. Going through your career and looking at your career, what were the pieces that were really pivotal to you when you look back and say, right, actually these moments defined who I am now and how I operate in my, in my career and in my current post today? I think that um, one of the main drivers of my career, and um, th that was what led me to leave my very comfortable position initially in Portugal and where I studied all my life with my family uh, and with a very stable, um, familiar situation, to move outside my comfort zone and challenge myself. Challenge myself scientifically because technically I was going to work in a different area from the, the one I had accumulated years of research experience. 
So learning a lot about complementary areas in um, how drug development works in, in the pharma environment, and that is critical. Uh, then again, working in the different environment in a CRO mode, um, and then coming back to the university to a completely different position with many uh, limitations in terms of resources, as you can imagine when you compare it to, um, to big pharma or even uh, biotech and, um, and timelines and pains and hurdles that you, you, you find in every kind of bureaucratic aspect that you can think about. And so the key issue was, was, I believe, to really challenge myself every time I was taking a step. Um, and it was a step into an unknown direction. I didn't, of course, I knew from the beginning that I love uh, working uh, for Alfama and I love the culture that we have in the company. So I knew I wanted to work in a biochem. In a, in a biotech company on the long run, eventually have my own company and start a project of my own. I had this dream. I didn't know it was going to be possible in five or 10 years. So, and I was not working only with that goal. I was working and progressing in my career with the goal of getting as much tools as I could get my hand to, to learn a lot about everything that was important to one day when the opportunity uh, would come to be ready for it and to grab it. Okay. Um, so learning, challenge, different environments, those were sort of the key three, three themes I took from what you said there and those different parts that you took on and, and particularly challenges in the unknown, knowing that there were risks, knowing that it was going to be very different, but not quite entirely probably understanding how different biotech uh, um, CRO back into academia was going to be in terms of style and, and ways of working. How do you think that's affected your style as a manager and how would you therefore describe yourself as a manager? What, what do you think people get as an experience from you as their leader? Yeah, I think that um, independently of the place where you work, you work with people and you have to listen to them and you have and it's, it's for me, the number one thing in being a, ma a manager is to connect to the people that you are working with. And when I say the people that you're working with is either my colleague that sits in the desk in front of me or the CRO that I'm working with and that I have subcontracted a task. But I wanted this task to be properly done and I want to engage with him in a partnership style. So we don't just higher a result. We partner to get to that result. Um, of course, we are paying for it, obviously. But above all, it's all about people and how you connect to others. So one of the good things of going into these different positions, different geographies and different was to learn about different work methodologies and different personalities of uh, of group leaders, of managers, of directors, or collaborators uh, and researchers. So you work with people uh, in each one of, of your, which one of these colleagues has a different understanding of what's 
their role, what's their um, job description, how to behave, or personality overall. So the key issue for me is really to understand the people that you're working with and trying to get the best out of them. They need to be happy. They need to uh, be fulfilled in, in their position. They need to be motivated, but they need to understand that they are a critical part of this machinery that is uh, the project. And they are critical to the success of the team and of the company. So we all depend on, on others to be successful together. That's, that's a straightforward notion, but sometimes this message doesn't get to everyone. And they, I, I've seen this happening. I've seen people uh, with lack of motivation thinking that their job was not important or their, their, they were not being valued by, by their managers or by their directors. But that's not true um, because if they were not important, they were not there. And if the work they were doing was not important, it wasn't supposed to be done. So yeah. if you're doing something, it has to be relevant. Otherwise, it's not your fault. It's your manager fault or your director who is, <laughs> who is making you do something that is not needed for the company. So it's not your, it's, the problem is not uh, on, on your back. So uh, with the with the business today, how many people are, are in the company currently? We are a very small team, but it also helps us being a, a close uh, and supportive team. So we our operational team is uh, four members: okay. myself, my head of operations uh, Pedro, who is also a co-founder; uh, Gonzalo, another co-founder, is a scientific leader, and he's, uh, he was the the PI where this project emerged, uh, the lab of the lab where the project emerged from, and Claudia, who is a neurosurgeon in the hospital and is the responsible for the translation of the project from the research lab to the clinics. So something that we wanted from the beginning when we, starting, when we started our diligences was to make sure that our project was not just another research project done in the lab but had some, some meaning to the disease and to the clinicians and to the patients. Uh, so, and we, we always make sure that every experiment we run has, is aligned with the, with the clinical um, practice and with the medical need. So with that, uh, just, to, just to pull back to the, to the point you made in terms of the management pieces. So team of four at the moment, I imagine everyone's got some level of stake in the organization it's very easy to to drive because you're all working towards the same mission that desire and reason to get out of bed in the morning to sit down and get working to focus and make the most of your time is almost instinctual when you're at a team that size and you, you made a really good point in businesses where people don't feel that business witnesses where there are individuals not performing particularly well is often tied to that well there's are you happy are you enjoying the work but there is this big piece on the, the vision and the mission for the organization. And actually, like you said, that that actually really reverts back to the management team. And, and at the end of the day, probably reverts all the way back at the chain because it's not just for the CEO to be passionate, it's, but it's to, to feed that training down, to feed that enthusiasm, to feed that mission down to everyone within the business in order to have that reality and that feeling of, you know, I'm working towards a goal. 
and working towards that, that achievement and admission. Um, I think you've sort of seen mixed success on, on how that sits. Is that a big piece for you? Does the business have a very clear vision on what you'd like to achieve, what, what you're out there to do? Yeah, so um, going back three years in time, I was a postdoc in the university, right? And um, I had this project in my hands. I started learning how to translate science into business, how to build uh, biotech companies, what is needed, the steps to take. And we took this project as an example. It was something in the lab. It was something with, a, a very, with very promising results. Um, but it was an example uh, to work with. But when we start working uh, with this project, we started, as I said before, we talk to patients, uh, we talk to patients' organizations. And when you do that, it becomes real. And you're not just treating a disease, you're treating people. Uh, and when you start talking to physicians, neurosurgeons, neuro-oncologists, and they tell you what is the reality of these patients, uh, what these patients suffer, what's their alternatives, uh, how can, um, what, what can they aspire when they get such a diagnosis. When you start seeing how big pharma addresses glioblastoma field in terms of investment, in terms of new alternatives that may appear, this becomes, I wouldn't say personal, but turns into a mission. And that was the main driver to make me leave the university and had the full-time dedication to, to Tartext. We want, we really believe we have something extremely innovative that um, is what the neuro-oncologists, what the um, neurosurgeons would like to have to treat their patients. And we believe we have a very strong chance to in minimal increase their life expectancy. And this is the minimal uh, where the bar lies. So the minute you understand that, you feel a huge commitment to develop all your effort to this, to this goal. And so this is the driver for us to take these um, assets, let's call it the asset, our pharmaceutical company and our, our drug to the patients, to the clinics. And so this is actually a, a very simple motivation that comes along uh, with the business. Uh, and it's not only the, the perspective of doing a business out of it, but it's the perspective of being a game changer, of being something new. And after this, others will follow for sure. And you can explain the platform, you can think of other therapeutic indications. And in terms of, if you think of your mission, if you think of what you, what you aspire for your company, and it's interesting to see that the people that we have attracted for our uh, advisory board, for our board of administration, and people that support us in, in our adventure are people that share the same vision that we have, that have the same commitment and understand the burden of glioblastoma. And this is something that it's clearly uh, important to us as a company. And it's important for everyone that, uh, that we bring on board. Okay. And it's, um, and it's probably worth touching on 
that business mission in a, in a little bit more depth because I, I think you're right when you're a patient-centric organization and you can take that mission and put it in place in within your organization such a good driver such a powerful driver to to realize that you're going to have an impact on a patient population group that particularly within glioblastoma has very little in terms of options um the mortality rates are very high the promise as it stands for for patients that receive a diagnosis is it's tough to deal with i'm sure for, for any patient that you speak to so um so talk me through that so the patient-centric organization that mentality that you're starting to build internally that that binding force between the four of you as it stands and and anyone external that's that's getting involved um you said that you've had a lot of conversations with both neuroscientists and i, I know from our conversations that you've had you've sort of taken into account other groups it sounds like patience is also one of those who are the, I guess, what are the big influences on the business today? And you're thinking about how you set yourselves up, how you structure yourself for the next 12, 24 months. Who are the people that you're listening to? Where are you getting this external yeah. advice to make the right guidance and right, right decisions? Yeah, that's, um, that, that's really important because we do have a plan for the next four years, obviously, and uh, in, in for our clinical development stage. And uh, what we try to align from the beginning is because our approach is so innovative, uh, there are no um, established guidelines, for instance, for the mode of administration of our drug, which is local. So it's a local implantation of an hydrogel in the brain during the surgery as an adjunct to surgery. So this is actually a, a couple of, um, of regulatory aspects that we have to address. So one of our main concerns from the beginning when we start developing this technology is to align the regulatory strategy with the technical developments. And to do this, we obviously partner with, um, with regulatory consultants to interact both with the FDA and uh, with the EMA uh, in Europe. But then when you think about clinical development, um, as I said, Glioblastoma, fortunately, is considered a rare disease. So it's a, it's a disease that affects 10 to 15,000 people uh, every year in the United States. Uh, and the number of patients um, available for clinical trials is not that high because you have many therapies being tested by big pharma and by other biotech companies. Uh, so the number of patients that a small company like ours has access um, is limited. So that's one of the reasons why we're expanding or planning to expand our um, phase one, two clinical trial uh, globally and not focused exclusively um, in the US or exclusively in, in Europe. But uh, because you have a different mode of administration, it does require a strong input from neurosurgeons because they will perform the surgery and they will administer the hydrogel by the time they are removing part of the tumor uh, from the brain. So it needs to be a concern of a company developing an agent to surgery to listen to the, to the, to the professional that is going to administer uh, your, your, your product. So for us, it is very important to have the feedback 
of uh, neurosurgeons, as it is important to have the feedback uh, of neuro-oncologists that treat the patients and choose the best treatment regimen for them. So we need really to cover all the medical aspects related to, to this different modality of treatment. So the drug concentration in the tumor site is uh, tens of times higher than if it was given systemically. Mm -hmm. So you, you need to account medically for all these differences. On the other hand, you are treating a disease which, uh, for which uh, the patients in their family uh, whenever they receive a diagnosis like this, it's a tremendous stress uh, and um, it's a terrible diagnosis to receive. So it is important also to understand how do these patients react to this diagnosis? Are they willing to go into clinical trials to try something different? Do they want to be more conservative? Or there's a, a treatment like ours, which is administered during the surgery that they were already going to go through, and they don't have to go back to the hospital for uh, more treatments. Would this be something that would be good for them? There is a, a, um, a survey from the Brain Tumor Association showing the main symptoms or the main concerns of patients with glioblastoma and with the treatments, obviously number one is survival, but there are others like headaches and being, uh, being able to, to do basic um, motor um, activities like walking and dressing and eating um, by themselves. So these were concerns and also by talking to people that survived glioblastoma um, helped us understanding the disease burden Mm -hmm. um, and helped us understanding that we need to be fast because every month that passes is one month left that we have to help these, um, these patients and, and their families. So it's really important not only to align regulatory, medical, technical aspects, but also to understand the disease burden. And Ultimately, this all relates to people, Nick, mm -hmm. because it's what I was saying in the beginning. The physicians that treat these patients want the best for their patients, want to have the best options. And our role here is to, pr to provide them another possibility to treat their patients. So we have to engage with them and we have to let them know what is our motivation and what is our product. What can our drug do? What can our strategy do for their patients? And how can we uh, jump into this, this, this arena, this glioblastoma field, which is a niche indication, obviously, we understand that. Uh, but how can we differentiate ourselves and how can they support us bringing our alternative to the clinics and how can we help them treat their patients? So their feedback has been very important in some um, development decisions that we took. And with, and with that, so there was um, just at the end there, you mentioned the, the current treatment options and the plan of action for someone that gets diagnosed. Where does it, where does it currently stand? So a patient, often very young, gets diagnosed with a glioblastoma. What's the so, reality for them in terms of options on the market currently? Once, once you get diagnosed, uh, you immediately go to surgery. Mm -hmm. 
and it's usually one two weeks uh, in 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 US, um, a little bit longer in in Europe, and longer even longer in Portugal. Uh, but this surgery is the goal is to remove as much as possible from the tumor. But more than 90% of these resections are only partial because the tumor is very invasive. And given the invasiveness of it, the neurosurgeon often uh, has the problem of uh, removing parts of the tumor that are in critical areas of the brain and can impair the cognitive or the motor um, performance of the, of the patient. So it always leaves a safety margin left that cannot be safely removed. And the safety margin often regrows within two centimeters from the original site to um, after eight to, to nine months to, uh, to give uh, rise to recurrent tumors that ultimately leads to death. So from the time of diagnosis is usually around 14 to 16 months of uh, life expectancy. So it's really short. And when they finish surgery, there is a, a wound healing period of two, three weeks where these patients don't, uh, are not allowed to, to, to start their radiotherapy because of the wound healing process. Uh, and so then you start radiotherapy and then you start uh, chemotherapy. And you said, so the 14, uh, so post-surgery, the life expectancy is 14 to 16 months post-surgery. Is that right? Or, or post-diagnosis? Yes. yes, because between surgery and, and diagnosis, it's just a, a matter of, of yeah. a few weeks. Okay. Yeah. So even with surgery, the success rates are... Yeah. Are pretty much non-existent on that for, for long term. Exactly. And, and, and so, and then when you have recurrence, you then do not go to temozolomide, which is a standard of care for newly diagnosed. Uh, you go to, to to other alternatives like Avastin, like the tumor treating fields. Um, you go to to other DNA alkylating drugs like carmistine. You have the the wafers. Gliadel. So we want to position ourselves at the time of surgery and starting to cover this post-surgery window where these patients don't get any kind of treatment and to start immediately diffusing our drug across the brain and eliminate these unresected cells that were not fully removed during surgery and therefore avoid recurrence. So that's our strategy. What's the so fifteen thousand patients in the, in the U.S. as it stands per year? What's the likelihood of those having well, a successful surgery to the point that either they they have an all clear diagnosis long term or they they have recurrent um, tumors? Yeah, according to literature data, more than ninety percent of these surgeries are only partial resections, meaning that less than 10 have a, a full resection. But even with full resection, some of these patients need to go to um, chemo and radiotherapy. Uh, and so uh, the, um, the five years survival is within, it depends, depends on the sources, but two to 5%. Okay, okay. Quite a sizable number of individuals. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the first half of this interview. If you're a biotech investor, 
I want to hear more. Joelle and I go on to talk in more depth on the upcoming plans for Targetex, including details on their current IP position, manufacturing, upcoming fundraise. If you're keen to hear more, reach out to me on LinkedIn or on email at nick.ross at or via the Cabinet Health website. All links are on the post.